0: Hi everyone, David here. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy. If you like what you hear, I want access to more of our fascinating in-depth content on the energy transition, you need to subscribe. You can try us for 30 days for just 29 euros, which will get you full access to our website and app. We also have a wide range of subscription packages to fit you or your company's needs. Follow the link in the show notes or go to www.foresightdk.com forward slash subscribe to find out more. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Energy Enablers, the podcast from Foresight Climate and Energy, talking to those working every day on the front line of the energy transition. I'm David Weston and my guest this week is Leonard Birnbaum. Leo is CEO of E.ON but was more recently appointed president of the trade association Euroelectric, and it is in this guise that I have spoken to him this week. We discuss the nature of the European electricity market and how the rules that govern the system need to adapt. We also touch on how the conversation around the security of supply in Europe is changing. I hope you enjoy the show. Leo, thank you so much for joining us on Energy Enablers today. You were recently made president of Euroelectric. Can you briefly describe what this role is and what attracted you to it? Yeah. uh, Euroelectric is obviously the industry association of uh, the electricity
1: producing, transmitting, distributing, and selling industries uh, across Europe. And uh, it's an association of association of national associations. So it's a super, uh, the European super association, so to say. And what attracts me to it is, I think it's uh, it's kind of like a call of duty. If you are a CEO of a large utility, uh, you have a certain likelihood that you have to do this job. And it's an important job because you bring expertise to the Brussels discussion. And I hope to do a little bit of that. That is what attracted me.
0: So what do you hope to achieve? It's, uh, uh, as, as I understand it, a two-year term uh, as, uh, as chairman, or as president. What do you hope to achieve in the next two years uh, in this role?
1: Yeah, uh, obviously... Um, uh, we came out with a President's Manifesto, me and my two Vice Presidents, uh, Marcus Rauramont and George Stassis from Fortum and from PPC. And what we um, said is basically a threefold um, priority. Number one is uh, we want to uh, rethink uh, security of supply with a real focus on electrification. And that is in the context of the crisis which we just overcame yeah? and where security of supply now really is back on the agenda. Uh, But actually, it's not in contradiction to uh, the decarbonization effort, but how can we drive this now in conjunction with the decarbonization effort, which was on the table? Um, So that's number one. Uh, How can we drive that forward? The second one is I think we want to put a different emphasis on the electricity infrastructure, which has been, with maybe the exception of uh, cross-border transmission, neglected. uh, Because... We understand that the energy transition is really happening in the distribution grids. This is where e-mobility happens. This is where the heating transformation happens, heat pumps, et cetera. This is where the renewables, most renewables are actually connected. And what we need is a much, much stronger and much, much more digital infrastructure. And so we want to raise the awareness for that and make sure that somehow we we also see the right movements in that direction. And the third one is... um we want to have you know we need to keep um, a market framework in place rooted in fairness um, just to make sure uh, that we have a good distribution between risks and benefit and also that uh, vulnerable customers are protected but so it's a fair distribution of risk and benefits for all market participants so those are the three priorities which we try to push forward and the context is obviously the ongoing electricity market design discussion a new commission coming in yeah a new parliament defining a new story uh, and what i would suggest if you want to cut it down to one thing is drive it forward with a much stronger focus on implementation and delivery rather than you know putting policy over policy over policy so implementation it really needs to happen now this is i think what is on our agenda
0: absolutely i was interested in, you said um... Infrastructure specifically is being neglected uh, over the, over recent years. Why do you think that is?
1: Yeah, I think we had uh, in most markets a pretty strong infrastructure, which had reserves which we could utilise. Um, so the grid was uh, by all means dimensioned in a way that it could cope with the challenges of let me call it the first wave of renewables coming in. We saw already, you know, bottlenecks appearing, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but somehow. Uh, there was the understanding that in reality, the, the, the constraining factors is not the speed at which we can add renewables, but the speed at which we can actually integrate renewables, which is clearly depending on infrastructure. That was that is only now really becoming apparent. And so, just, just to be very clear, I think every euro that you put in renewables is 50 cents into infrastructure. If you don't do that, we won't be successful.
0: Interesting. Yeah. That's- That's obviously going to be quite a lot of of money however therefore the amount of renewables that are planned to go out uh, in the next yeah 15 15 years and then on top of that the infrastructure as well
1: yeah but uh, i think uh, we should not be afraid of overbuilding infrastructure the reality is with the speed at which we're expanding uh, renewables heat pumps e-mobility etc it's nearly impossible for us to overbuild and even if theoretically we would be able to build so fast that at a certain point in time we said oh now we are really 2 years ahead of the curve all right 2 years later we are again you know like caught up yeah but if we invest too little and we overload the system then it's just much harder to catch up so actually it's it's nearly a no regret to build as much infrastructure as you can it's nearly impossible to overbuild and if you overbuild it co- it gets corrected very fast while if you underinvest then it's very, very hard to correct because then you re- need to catch up with a very dynamic uh, you know, energy transition happening. So I think this is a clear one. And, and really, it needs to be fully digital. The system mm. of the future cannot be maintained, managed, steered, operated if we don't fully digitize it, which mm-hmm. is also a big
0: difference uh, to the past. Mm. So... Where does that investment uh, need to be directed, both geographically, perhaps within Europe, but also between uh, digital and physical assets? In reality, I believe we need to invest into everything, everywhere.
1: Um, Just to take the numbers from our latest Euroelectric study, the decarbonization speedways, between 2020 and 2040, we assume that solar PV will increase by a factor of nine, from 150 gigs to above 1,300 gigs by a factor of 10 for wind offshore, factor of four for wind onshore, et cetera, et cetera. Now, all of that needs to be integrated. And obviously, this is so big, it needs to happen everywhere. You know, you can't plug all these capacities into any single region. And so we need to invest into grids, into uh, backup capacity, into storages, into uh, renewables, uh, infrastructure, but also into demand flexibility, et cetera. Um, And I'm always saying uh, the challenge is so big and the transformation is so big that we are actually aspiring to do that. um, It's not one lever is enough. And if you invest enough into PV, you can spare yourself everything else. It's just not going to happen. And the same is true uh, for digital. If you invest enough into digital, you can get rid of any investments into physical grids. You will be able to minimize or reduce the investment needs into the grid because you can utilize your assets better. If you add demand flexibility, that will give you a, a lever to invest less into renewables and still achieve the same target. But it's not that digital, you know, gets rid of any other investments completely. So we will need, be very clear, new lines, new cables, more aluminum, more copper on top of more silicon. Yeah? So it's, mm-hmm. you need all of it. The transition is just too big to say, I have one solution and that one sorts it out. And if you allow me a very cynical comment, there are many people around who say, I have the solution. Whenever somebody says that I have the one solution, kick him out. He <laughs> just is an lobbyist and has
0: a self interest. <laughs> you think uh, it's going to have to be a, a range of solutions? Absolutely. I mean, it's very clear. I mean, for example,
1: it's clear it, we can't uh, become green without PV and wind how else should we you know have green electricity but if we don't add demand side flexibility how will we going to cope with the massive overbuild of renewables that we're adding if we don't add much more infrastructure how should we connect all of those renewables yeah mm-hmm. so you know and sincerely uh, i still believe we should have some stabilizing backup capacities uh, in the system for the cases when the renewables are not going to deliver what we want them to deliver so i think it, the, the answer is yes it absolutely needs to be arranged efficiency demand side flexibility generation infrastructure everything will be needed it's actually exciting for a utility guy yeah
0: yeah really exciting absolutely uh such a, a vibrant sector to be in in terms of then current electricity market design is that ready for this sort of wave of uh digital uh uptake
1: i think it's showing first understandings uh, that this is uh, you know a necessity i mean the european commission traditionally since uh infrastructure is mostly in the remit of the member states has neglected this topic a little bit because they have focused on cross-border transmission and generation reality yeah? and then a bit on customer protection. Um, but now they have actually explicitly mentioned that this topic needs to be part of it. So I've taken that as an encouraging sign. Then second, they have focused a lot on uh, making, uh, so kind of trying to put systems in place or tools in place that ensure Se- investment security. So the whole discussion around PPAs and CFDs, and I, we believe actually in the end it will be a mix of both instruments, that that should provide to investors a good business case. So I think th- this understanding is there, and also what I mentioned is understanding that there needs to be a good distribution of risks and benefit. At least we have to say it was a very reasonable, uh, you know, a very reasonable consultation also and also proposed by the EU Commission uh, on, you know, uh, the obligations which they were putting upon suppliers. So totally, yeah, I I think we see signs in the right direction. We were publicly stating that we think the result of the EU Commission was a glass half full moving in the right direction. And I would love to focus on making the half full glass completely full. Yeah, So that would be great.
0: So a lot of the recent kind of conversations around electricity market design um, has kind of stemmed, I think, in the last sort of two years, especially since um, the COVID crisis, but also Russia's invasion of Ukraine and things like that. But obviously it was been required for quite a long time, uh, especially as renewables are, are, has slowly dominated the market. Do you think the current market design is working the way it should do to achieve the energy transition? Um, is, say, the integrated market still the best way forward and what changes if not what changes are there needed to make to accelerate decarbonization
1: yeah let's be very clear uh, if we look back at the last year uh, the european market uh, energy market uh, has really saved every single one in, within europe yeah france would have been in deep deep trouble on the electricity side Germany, the whole of Eastern Europe, Austria, we would have been in deep, deep trouble on the gas side uh, yeah, and mutually in kind of like we have helped each other. There is no national market. There is only European market. I always take the example of Slovakia. There is no Slovakian energy market. Slovakia is part of a wider European energy market, but there is also no German energy market. Also, Germany is part of a wider market. We could, uh, so, so everybody was benefiting from it last year. The security of supply, which we have eventually achieved, we would have never have achieved if not for the European market. So we have to say, if you ask the question, is the market design functioning, I would say, it did a damn good job last year. That's the positive. Now, there was a moment in time in which one was wondering, these price signals, they just don't make sense anymore for customers because customers can't pay it. You know, it's like they don't make sense for suppliers because you can't hedge on that level. Uh, you know, they don't make sense for generators because they can't actually do the margin call. So it's somehow last August, it really looked like the market is breaking down because the price, if the prices would have stayed at that level. yeah. And this is what really was really what triggered the market design discussion. But we have to say, uh, so uh, we said then let's talk about targeted amendments to cope with such situations. Rather than now, you know, how is it, how is it saying? I know the, the German proverb, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathtub. Does that translate yep. into English? Yep. All right. Okay. So it's the same in German. Yeah. So anyway, so rather than doing that, you know, kind of do some targeted amendments, which allow you still to, you know, continue to invest, but it's, uh, but still at the same time, ensuring that customers are not overburdened. So I would say, yeah, the, the current market design hasn't actually done such a bad job. It needs to be amended. Going forward, we need to really think how it should work once we have 80% renewables or whatever, because then clearly we will not see the backup capacity conventional yeah. coming into the market based on the energy-only market. So that's the one caveat that i had. And also I think reforms are needed because sincerely we have seen price interventions in the last year and re- also retroactive changes to regulation which now will become a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, it's kind of like once you have done them, it means, okay, once you've intervened, you need to intervene also in the future. So I think in that sense, yes, some changes are needed going forward, but the market design overall has worked better than most people actually in public debate admit.
0: Do you think the design um, needs to shift to a point where it reflects, a, as you say, an 80% renewables? Uh, market, or is it? Is there? Is there? St- are we still in this sort of transition phase where there needs to be rules to get us to that point? I.
1: It's probably always a transition. Yeah. If somebody tells me, you know, we will have a consistent, uh, you know, intellectually completely sound um, uh, regulation without any contradictions and political in you know, like kind of like. Small items added to it. I said, well, leave this industry. You're not going to see that for the next 40 years. Yeah. So, uh, but, um, so yes, there will be transition phases and there will be all kinds of uh, silly things happening in between. But as long as the overall trend is right, that's, that's good. Now, uh, I really believe it's hard to incentivize investments into security of supply without, uh, you know, with a pure reliance on, on uh, free market prices in the merchant market, also because politicians have clearly shown last year that if prices really spike, they intervene. But the moment they have showed us, they have basically told, "Don't rely on the merchant market for you know making investments happen." So you know then, uh, so therefore, I believe you know we now go to PPAs and CFDs, but for backup capacity, like you see in Germany, debate right now, we're going to go for auctions. Then the question will be, is this a capacity market or is this something else? Yeah. And so, yes, we will need, we will need some changes in the direction that the energy only market will still be there. It will be actually the signal that we will use to dispatch. It's the most reasonable way to do. But for capacity, probably we will see some additional, you know, instruments coming in. But that's really a discussion for the next, um, EU Commission. This EU Commission, I think, uh, does
0: a really good job if they cover the topics on the table today. Hi, everyone, me again. Please do rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. It really helps us out, means we can make more shows like this and means more people can find us. Also, a quick reminder to subscribe to Foresight Climate and Energy so you don't miss out on any of our other podcasts or long-form journalism. Head to the link in the show notes or go to com forward slash subscribe. You've mentioned uh, security of supply a couple of times uh, so far. Um, and obviously, uh, there's one definition which I think a lot of people are you know, fairly uh, Aware of and in that it's you know, making sure the electricity is there when you need it at a price that you can afford. Is that still the definition of security supply today, or is that shifting in a in a world uh, dominated by renewables after the Ukraine invasion, after COVID? Has that shifted at all? No, I think it's still the right. It's still the right answer. And you know,
1: like exactly as you said, uh, available but also at an affordable price, whatever affordable is. Yeah. Um, but also green as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that's the other. It's, it's our classical trilemma: uh, security of supply, economics, and sustainability. So it's always this trilemma uh, between which we have to find the right trade-off. Mm, um, yeah. And in the last year, it really became clear that uh, security of supply is not a given. You know, we were focused completely on sustainability in the last decade. Uh, really, also fit for fifty-five. You know, like all the the the, winter, the summer package, all the the, the last. Five-year regulation was more sustainability, security of supply, somehow okay, yeah, Uh, and affordability, it's, it's there, yeah. Now we have realized, oh, affordable prices, yeah, economics, which let our industry function, which our customers can pay. Actually, we can get into trouble there. Security of supply might also not be there. So I would just say the trilemma is back on the table, and now the electricity market design and policymakers need to and be more conscious about trade-offs which they have and they just can't drive one agenda and say the rest will follow somehow i think that's the real big change also mental change now uh, when it comes to regulation uh, of the last year
0: yeah um just quickly i wanted to go back you mentioned you know uh, i think you said slovakia was part of the european uh energy market but also germany is as well um but off the back of um Especially the IRA in the US, which is quite a protectionist policy, is being accused of being quite a protectionist policy. Um, China looking quite inwardly. We've obviously had to, we've had to cancel uh, energy imports from Russia and, and turn our backs towards them. Could the rising level of protectionist policies um, and people, and talking about security of supply, people wanting to make sure that their their power is coming from within their own borders? Could that affect the European integrated markets at all? It could, but it should not because it's not possible. I mean,
1: it's it's obvious. I mean, first, it's extremely expensive to do. Second, it's very unlikely that it will work. Third, on a national level, the trilemmas cannot be kind of like mitigated. So even the biggest markets would make a big, big mistake by doing so. And then an industrialized market like Germany would might have mm. I mean, really struggle because In reality, I don't believe we can actually supply ourselves without imports, which is no problem. Yeah. So yes, it could. Yeah. I, there are people out there I think who don't understand the markets well enough who believe that this is a viable option. I absolutely believe this is not a viable option, not for an industrialized Mm. wealthy Europe as we are today. We should be very careful with that one. We should rather strengthen Europe. I absolutely, I repeated what I said. The Mm. European market has saved everybody in the last year everybody would have struggled mightily otherwise so we should be very happy and by the way there are some who now might say but i in sweden i could have done without yes but you are now benefiting with green steel coming to sweden yeah uh, and with industry coming to your area so yeah, yeah you might pay a little bit more on the energy side but you are getting something in, in exchange so yeah. everybody's
0: benefiting mm, absolutely that leads me on quite nicely to to my last uh, little uh, section on on industrial competitiveness within (laughs) europe and how that is all interlinked with energy policy as well is there a single policy or a little package of policies you'd like to see implemented that will support both industrial competitiveness uh, and european industry and the energy transition Mm. Um, I make two comments number one um Energy
1: now gets more and more interlinked with other sectors. Uh, We, I mean, we all knew about mobility and now heating. We understood it's also electricity mostly Um, now. And then maybe via hydrogen, also industries like steel and chemicals. Yeah. So we get somehow electrification going everywhere. Um, So yes, there is a higher linkage. And if you think about the European common market, um, you can't separate energy now. If you would say, I have a national market of an energy, how can you then have a European market on steel if steel is then supposed to be green with hydrogen or green steel? Yeah. Direct re- reduction of iron ore, direct reduction. So, uh, and if, if you have no common market for steel, I mean, where would it stop? So as long, we, we are absolutely clear Europe needs the common market. But if we actually have a common market, means we also have a common market for energy. We can't separate that anymore because it's not that we have energy here and industry and mobility somewhere else. Everything is converging, so that means we actually need to live with it. Uh, that nobody can really exit the European market in a meaningful way that actually would be beneficial to his or her society. Yeah? So you you hear that I'm a big proponent uh, by Europe or of Europe, which is good because as a Euroelectric president, it's helpful. At the same time, if you ask me about the one thing that I would say, I would say we need a mental shift towards more focus and simplicity. Yeah, um, because if I think about Brussels, you know, like then stuff comes to my mind that we are being flooded all the time, hmm. even in a time of crisis, where our people are working day and night with more and more regulation on less and less relevant stuff always good intentions but it's just killing us yeah we just can't cope with the machine producing regulation at a speed at which we can't implement it yeah and then and so and on top it's not it's really complex regulation which is coming our way yeah supply chain act yeah the intention is great the effect on my company is huge now I would say yeah but this you're big you can cope with it yes but I will hand it over to all my small suppliers as well, because otherwise I can't sign it. And uh, the sustainability reporting directive—it's getting a monster. I mean, it's like you know, I, we are supposed to report hundreds of KPIs, of which a handful is relevant for us, yeah? or for me, my company. Maybe another handful for somebody else. But so, w- what really would be good is if Europeans would pause a second, European politicians, and say what is really important in the time of ira in the time of war in ukraine yeah in a time in which we need to do an energy transition what is supportive to that and what can we maybe do in 2045 yeah uh, so because otherwise we never get into this execution mode and the second and then simplicity i mentioned the ira what's often lost it's simple it's pre- it's relatively predictable yeah you understand after a few weeks what you're going to get for your project. In Europe, you do an IPCE project, two years later, you get told, ah, maybe the next call. Yeah. Uh, after thousands of pages of application, you get a delegated act for hydrogen Yeah, mm-hmm. where you need uh, an expert and a few months of work to understand which color your, your gas is that you're producing. And I think so simplicity and focus on what really matters. That would be probably the biggest game changer in Europe. And here you see that, despite being a
0: fanatic European, I actually I can be also critical yes. about you. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, for all its greatness, it has some flaws as well. Leo, thank you. Uh, before we go, um, I'd really love to delve into your background a little bit. Um, how did you get into working in the energy sector? Particularly, how did you get to where you are today?
1: Oh, how I got to E.ON is more uh, many, many uh, coincidences, but I'm a chemical engineer by background. I always thought that I would work in the chemical industry. Mm. I was dreaming about building a steam cracker, you know, that's the queen of the petrochemical stage. Nothing is more beautiful right. than a steam cracker. I was born in Ludwigshafen, BSF, on my doorstep, so uh, chemical engineer. Well, I started my professional life uh, uh, at a consultancy, and I ended up in a lignite mine, Yeah, so... Uh, here was and i loved it i loved the miners i loved the equipment the people were cool it was really really great work i just loved it and i was thinking mm. this is a fantastic sector because that was uh, 97 uh, before the liberalization of the markets now i was looking at the market Now i was thinking this is a fantastic sector for a young person to work in because the liberalization will mean that everything changes And if everything changes, it means experience gets heavily discounted, and then the old experienced hands all of a sudden don't have an an advantage against you anymore. Actually, they might have a disadvantage because they're so used to something which doesn't exist anymore. So I said, this is the industry for a young person. Here, you can really change a lot, even being young and inexperienced, because everybody soon will be inexperienced. Hmm. So then I went to the US. Uh, you know, worked for several utilities over there. They were a little bit ahead. There was pre-California disaster, yeah. Yep. And then I came back in '98, and it was just bang on time. You know, it's like and it, it it really worked exactly the way I had imagined it. And I was a really young consultant, three years, and I did stuff which I would have never dreamed of doing. And then I did that and i truly enjoyed the industry you know and then ets came and i thought that's another big change that's a huge opportunity yeah and everybody was saying no we can't do that i was saying that's a huge opportunity let's go for it grid regulation came and so every single time i thought fantastic even more change yeah Mm -hmm. and that is what really brought me uh, what really in the end was the driver is i felt here i can make a difference Mm -hmm. and then eventually i understood this is even better. I can make a difference. So it's fantastic for me personally, but it's also, it's meaningful because our societies only work with energy and, and, and the future is kind of like, you know, let's hope for a good future of the, of humankind Mm. also only works if industry delivers. So I thought best sector to work in, Yeah, it's a sector for young persons, the young people who want to change something. It's a meaningful product. It's a product that's good for society and it's product, which is good for the future. So is that my place?
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And you can obviously tell from you're, you're passionate about the change and the pace of change and, and what that means uh, technologically, but also from a regulatory standpoint. As an engineer, you'd like the machinery and things like that. How do you enjoy those both sides of the thing? Talking about the regulation and the policy, but also getting your hands dirty, as it were, in clean energy and, and building new and exciting technologies.
1: Yeah. Uh, I just say, um, I'm, I'm a bit kind of like this Prussian engineer. It's kind of, if everything needs to happen yeah. uh, for something to be successful, then you need to work on everything, whether you like it or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I I I I I can't say that I love regulation the way that I loved uh, working with the miners and really it was just the people who mm-hmm. attracted me with great straight guys yeah so I just loved the human touch of it and then I loved the engineering etc mm-hmm. behind it but uh, so regulation is less exciting but it's just part of the game uh, and sure. now I'm the CEO. And this is what I need to focus now on politics and uh, regulation Mm. and giving some directions and the exciting technology stuff is done by other people. And sometimes I indulge myself and they make me a great presentation, but I'm out of those cool projects. I'm doing what needs to be done by the CEO, but actually the reward is that I'm still working in a sector, which is absolutely essential. Mm. So I never have the problem to explain to my kids what I've been doing. Yeah. So kind of like. You come home. I I increased you know production efficiency of cigarette production by another five million cigarettes per day. So what? It's actually bad before. It's bad up. But I can say I made sure that we have integrated another gigawatts of renewables, and it's working now even better than before. It's actually great. Yeah. You know? So mm-hmm. I'm doing something meaningful, and I'm I'm driving a change which is meaningful. So th- I'm I'm still feeling. I I am, you know, I'm not wasting my life mm. on something that is somehow not really important.
0: Brilliant. Do you have any advice for perhaps this, uh, the next generation about to enter the energy sector today? Uh, first, I would say best decision you can make, <laughs>
1: you know, it, because I mean, again, there's going to be a, a, so much change coming, you know, still coming that, you know, we won't run out of challenges. So if you really want to make a difference, hey, come to the sector by all means. Uh, there are opportunities and challenges uh, for everybody, huh? mm-hmm. just sector conversions, for example. Huh? Um, the, the second advice I would always give is um, you need to find your own path. Ask people, yeah. listen to them, what they tell you, listen to Leo, why, but then you say, that's yeah, fine, That worked for Leo, what works for me? So you need. I mean, I always say that you need to find your own path. I have my firm beliefs. For example, I believe you need to work hard. Yeah, if you don't work hard, you're not going to go anywhere. Yeah. So then you need to figure out what what trade-offs are you willing to make. Yeah. Um, and you know, if work ba- life balance is extremely important for you, then you might accept some limitations which I have not accepted. But I had no work life balance. It just didn't exist as a concept. Yeah. Uh, but i never suffered by that because it worked for me so Mm. find uh, my advice is come to energy it's a cool sector whatever your choices are you will find enough challenges for your choices yeah the need uh, for great people educated people is without limits Mm. but then figure out what you really are willing to give what you're willing to take find your own path Uh,
0: and just finally then before we go one question i ask all of our guests Will the energy transition succeed? Yes.
1: The alternative is not an option, especially for Europe, because we have no alternatives. The US, I mean, they can go maybe to shale gas and whatever, yeah, and they have really cheap gas. We don't have cheap gas anymore, so that's not an option for us. Um, Asia, uh, I mean, they can rely on coal and then slowly get phase out of coal, you know, as they decide to do is not an option for us and they have other advantages. Europe has only the option to make the energy transition a success. Otherwise, our whole business concept is doomed. So it will be a success because there is no other choice. We absolutely have to make it work. And I think if we understand that and then we actually accept the consequences from that, then I think we can make it a success.
0: Absolutely. Leo, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure my thanks to Leo for joining me on Energy Enablers. I was really taken by Leo's admission that he prefers the technical side of of the energy transition, but without advancing the regulatory and political frameworks and the negotiations with it, technology won't go anywhere. We'll be back again soon with another energy enabler. In the meantime, do check out the rest of our energy transition content over on www.foresightdk.com. Thanks for listening.